hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to our Books with Hook segment. We are going to dive straight in. Cece, why don't you read our first query letter? Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lira, I enjoyed speaking with both of you during the Festival of Literary Diversity and find your advice incredibly helpful. Thank you for taking the time to critique query letters and first pages on the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. The Rishta is an own voices adult contemporary novel that will appeal to lovers of Fatma Farin, Misra's A Place for Us, and Uzma Jalaluddin's Aisha at Last. The full manuscript is approximately 80,000 words. It is a standalone novel with series potential. Please note the novel includes mention of Shia genocide, which can be triggering. 23-year-old Azia Talpur does not fit the mold of the perfect Pakistani daughter. She doesn't know how to behave in public. She watches too much basketball. Her bedroom is always a mess. And she wants to enter the publishing industry when she graduates from college. Oh yeah. And she just got dumped by her secret boyfriend. When Adam Anwar, a man she's never met before, uses her surreptitious past to blackmail her into accepting his Rishta marriage proposal, 
proposal, Azia has no choice but to play along. In order to keep her ex-boyfriend hidden, escape her engagement, and follow her dream of becoming an editor, rather than pursuing the steady business career selected for her, she must risk breaking her immigrant parents' hearts. With the help of her blackmailer's alienated siblings, Azia has to reconcile the future she wants and the life her parents have outlined for her before she is trapped in a false marriage. As a Pakistani-American Muslim woman, I have drawn on my experiences with my family and our adjustment to a Western lifestyle in San Francisco, California. As a writer, I have attended Women in Publishing Summit, DVCon, Write Hive Conference, Festival of Literary Diversity, and Literary Cleveland's Incubator. I am a member of Megan February's Book Year Program. Sincerely, Narjis Sheik. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, why don't we hand it across to you? Why don't you let us know what you think of this query letter? Actually, I thought this was great. I thought, you know, there was so much going on here with the got the hashtag own voices. The manuscript word count is on point and the little uh, trigger warning was really thoughtful um, and generous and, and that was very welcome. I thought that one thing that I wasn't really clear about was whether this was more commercial or literary, because I feel like the A Place for Us is a bit more literary, and then Aisha at Last is a bit more commercial. So I think I would have just wanted to know a little bit more about where exactly that is in the marketplace, because it said, this is an own voice, it's adult contemporary novel, but it doesn't say upmarket, commercial, et cetera, et cetera. So those, I feel like those are great comps, but I also felt like I wasn't exactly sure whether I should be thinking commercial or literary. But author bio was great. All of that was good. One thing I wanted to talk about and CC, you know, let me know if you want to go here. But I want to talk a little bit about when agents don't win projects that we offer on. So I won't say which of these comp titles I offered on because I don't want to um, single out the author or anything like that. But one of these projects in the comp I offered rep on. And so it's always um, amusing to me when I see those comps in pitches because, you know, I've, I've read that book, I've considered that book, and I've offered on that book. Yeah, and it, it has a special little place in my heart. So, you know, there's a lot of heartbreak that goes into when we offer rep on things and when I see projects that I offered rep on as comps it also lets me know like this is obviously a project that I I would probably be seriously interested in as well and and it's a little bit of an internal internal chuckle yeah so so it's one of those things where agents get get heartbroken too and I like to remind everybody of that you know we don't win every single project we offer rep on and a lot of times mostly out of confidentiality you know agents don't talk about that sort of thing because you know out of respect to the authors and things like that and not getting in the way of their future careers or anything like that. But we we offer rep and lose projects all the time. Another one happened to me this week. So so just letting everybody know that agents do also understand the heartbreak of the query process. It's also really challenging for us as agents because we don't have anything to offer financially, right? Like with an editor, you know, you, you can go to auction when we're selling a book. But with agents, like all we offer is, you know, our personality and our track record and our, uh, our sales and our agency. Um, we have to go through this pageantry uh, in the industry we often call it the beauty contest. It's a this pageantry of, you know, trying to woo this client, which is always so, again, amusing and heartbreaking. But Cece, do you want to talk about any of your, your heartbreaks? You want to go there with me? Oh, gosh, yes. Thank you for saying this. I feel like not enough people know about this. It happens quite often. It happens to me all the time. I lost on a project it was about two weeks ago that I was so incredibly excited about. And I got way ahead of myself and almost like started writing the pitch for it because I was just so passionate about the work. It's happened many times in my short agenting career. And I understand. And you know what? I'll, I'll also say this. For me, I've only been doing this for a couple of years. It's almost, it's both refreshing, but at the same time, disheartening to hear that it still happens to, you know, someone like you, Carly, 
because you've been doing it for like for 11 years, right? I thought, okay, it's because I'm a new agent, but you know, pretty soon this won't happen anymore. And when we started working together, I found out that nope, it still happens even though, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I have that to continuously look forward to. You know, Carly mentioned in a, a previous episode that there is a, a power imbalance between agents and authors, particularly in the beginning of the relationship. And oftentimes the power is with the agent where it feels like it is anyway. And that's not something we want, but it's, you know, it's it's the reality. It's the perceived reality anyway. And when a writer has more than one offer of representation, it's a moment where the author has that power and it is as it should be. It is always a wonderful, wonderful thing to know that an author has tons of options. That does not mean that it makes our heartbreak hurt any less. I keep up with the authors who I offered rep from. I follow them on social media. Some of them, there's a book that is actually coming out in December of this year that I offered rep on. And she and I both follow each other on social media and I promote her book and she always thanks me. And we sometimes DM and it, you know, it became a friendship because at the end of the day, that's all that matters, right? The, the book is getting made and I'm happy for it. But this is a very good point. Rejection happens to everyone in the publishing industry. Agent, writer, editor. I wonder if publicists get rejected. Maybe maybe that's what well, their pitches. Done. Their pitches get rejected <laughs> sometimes. Right there, you go. So rejection is for everyone. Yeah. What I like to remind people is that, as it, you know, agents that are listening to this, is that it means you're getting good submission. Like it means that you are in that kind of category of agent that is you're you're getting really great projects. You know, it might be competitive situations with other great agents, and a lot of times we compete with the same agents who end up becoming our friends because we all have the same taste. So it's kind of this you know ironic, um, circuitous relationship. Another thing. Thing, what Cece was saying about becoming friends with people that you offered rep on. I, I have somebody like that where I offered rep. She ended up getting tons of offers. The book was a huge success, but her and I still DM. And it's great because, you know, what if I you know, need um, a blurb someday? You know, I could think of like her and we still have that great relationship. So it's just one of those things where, again, any agents listening to this, I don't think anybody would do this. But, you know, if somebody says, you know, I'm going with another agent, you know, thank you for your time. I always, you know, send them best regards. You know, I can't wait to see this book on the shelf. You know, I'm so excited for you, you know, sad for me, excited for you is what I basically always say, because I am, you know, it's, you never, and you also never know when somebody's going to come back. I had another example where this person chose another agent and didn't work out. And they came knocking on my door again. And they said, you know, does, does your offer still stand? Right. It still stands. Yeah. (laughs) And so they came back, right. You know, I'm going to be doing this forever and careers are long, long things. Writers, successful writers careers are going to be long too. So we never know how we're going to cross paths at conferences and things like that. So just reminding everybody, yeah, we all have the heartbreak and it's a super small world. And it's actually happened to Carly and I, because when I was at a different agency, we both got pitched at a writer's conference, the same project, and we both loved it. And and the writer, when we were both already at PS and couldn't send the manuscript to both of us because that's just not how it works, the writer chose Carly. And I think she chose really well because yeah, she's my colleague and she's awesome. And at the end of the day, as long as you pick a good agent, it's all good. Listen, I'm just like, this is great, all this kumbaya stuff. But what I find much more interesting is forget about you send that agent a congratulations. Let's do what Roxanne Gay does and let's have a nemesis in publishing and let's tweet <laughs> dark. I have some nemesis. Good. I have some nemesis. Don't you 
January. I can't go. I can't go on the Nemesis tirade on a podcast because this is public. But you know, when we get offline, everybody who's listening will will be sharing Nemesis. Don't you worry. Oh, I can't wait. I'm busy. I'm busy rubbing my hands together like a like a villain in some old time movie. But yeah, because that would make a really good book. This agent and this agent who are Nemesis, and they're fighting for one really good client. So you get the writing in there and everything, and lots of conflict, which is what we all want. Okay, so we have gone a bit off track. Cece, would you like to come back to the query later? What notes did you have on that? Yes, let's do it. So I love the shout out to the Festival of Literary Diversity. Thank you for that. Shout out to The Fold for the great work. Small thing, Carly has mentioned this before, and I very much agree. If you put the titles in all caps, it really helps with readability. I know it might, might seem like the smallest thing in the world, but it does help. I wanted to know where this was taking place. And I imagine it might be San Francisco because of the author bio paragraph, but I wasn't sure. And I just wanted to know. So I have a question in the plot paragraph. Is it intentional that her surreptitious past is kept so vague? Because it's used to blackmail her, right? And a good commercial novel has the character under a lot of pressure. And being blackmailed is a great way to like put the pressure on the character. But then I need to understand a little bit more about that secret, unless there's some reason why we can't know. I always feel like it's a fine line to toe, how much you share, how much you don't. But I feel like we should probably know what the surreptitious past is. I just want to understand the magnitude, I guess, to have a sense of the stakes. Are we talking about something that could land her in jail? Or are we talking about something that could disappoint her parents? I thought it was almost the secret really relationship, right? That's already at stake, though, with her intentions to go to publishing, right? Because if she's going to disappoint her parents, like, don't get me wrong, I know that disappointing your parents is a huge, huge, huge deal. Um, and there are cultural implications here. But I don't know, is it enough? If Is that what it is that she had a relationship? Because if she's already going to leave her life and go into publishing, she's already going to disappoint them. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. And also, if he's an ex, why does she have to keep him hidden? But then I guess maybe that might make sense. Because you know, if she still had the relationship. There's questions. So that's yes. the thing is that those questions need to be answered in the yeah. query letter. I would have kept on reading. If this person had queried me, I would have kept on reading and I would have hoped that the pages would have given me clarity. We do request the first 10 pages right on the body of the email. And, and this is helpful. And I wanted to say thank you so much. Very cool that you added your social media handles at the end of this. It's super helpful. We, I so appreciate it. It's not mandatory. You don't have to if you don't want to, but I love it. So thank you so much. Okay, Carly, why don't we dive into those first pages. What did you think of them? So one of my questions, as I kind of mentioned with the query was, is this commercial or is this literary? So I'm going into this kind of opening section, trying to feel my way through what is the category and the careful selection of word choice, really kind of being in the moment in this scene made me think it's a little bit more literary. So I was kind of like, okay, I think this might be like an upmarket novel is kind of where I landed with this. And so what happens just for the, for the listener is that the character is saying, you know, I'm going to Mary Raza Jaffrey. So she says, you know, I'm, he's fulfilled close to nothing on my husband checklist. I knew this when he approached me at the university library. So little things like this where I'm like, okay, you know, there's really wonderful, careful word choices is a great opening. So I'm thinking, yeah, this is, this is an upmarket novel. And so we're meeting this main character in Raza who she thinks she's going to marry. But what happens is it's kind of blows up in her face because she wants him to kind of organize his family together, come over to the house, make a marriage proposal. And he basically says, no, I'm not doing that. And kind of embarrasses her and says, you know, I believe I'm of higher class than you therefore that won't be happening and no that's embarrassing that you thought that so my big question for this section 
is. The partner that somebody chooses says a lot about that person. And so clearly this is a shitty dude. (laughs) And that's fine. It's okay to have shitty dude characters. But the fact that this character was so blind to how crappy this guy was tells me a lot kind of about this female character. And so I'm confused about her because when when somebody chooses a shitty person, um, even if it's a friend that chooses a really crappy partner, you're thinking like, that says a lot about your friend, right? You're like, man, like you're better than that. Like, why'd you choose this person? So I think about what this is actually saying about our main character, because we know this guy kind of, you know, they're dumping each other, you know, they're moving on. This isn't the guy, but I'm concerned that I don't really know why she chose this person. So this isn't necessarily like a likable versus unlikable person. I'm just trying to figure out through the lens of this character, why she chose him and if she was so naive that she couldn't figure like she couldn't see this guy for who she was I feel like I need to understand a little bit more of that and it is first person so yeah so she should have this revelation of like oh like I'm so naive I didn't even understand but she comes off with a bit of rage so I just felt the disconnect of what the author was trying to do with this relationship and what they were trying to tell us about this character in a way that I think I again very interesting this is an awesome place to start and I think this is the right place to start but I would have just liked to know a little bit more about this match and why this character thought this was a good match. So that was kind of my my main note that kind of carried through the whole thing. The second part of the sample is the character going home and kind of feeling like she has a big secret um, that she can't tell her family about this love interest. So there's a lot of great drama, a lot of stakes here. Cece, just before I move across to you, something that I know emerging writers do is they try in terms of showing the character arc, because remember who your character is at the end of the novel needs to be very different to who they are at the beginning of the novel or else we like why did they go on this journey why have we had to be with them and sometimes you know emerging writers will show characters behaving either in shitty ways in the beginning or behaving in ways that don't really make sense so that they can show later on how much the character has learned and grown but the reader still needs to be able to get on board with the mistakes that they're making and understand why they're making those kind of mistakes as they go through the whole character arc later on. Cece, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I think Carly hit the nail on the head when she said that this is not about being likable or unlikable. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with us understanding and falling in love with this person, with her essentially, right? And it makes so much sense because my first note as I was reading this on the margins after the first full paragraph, and you know, for the listener, the first full paragraph says that he fulfilled close to nothing on my husband's checklist. I knew this when he approached me at the university library. I knew this when he, I told him to leave me alone. And I knew this when he smoothly navigated around my pragmatic defenses, enchanting me senselessly. The next paragraph does not explain why, what about him made her fall in love with him. And that was my question. I wrote down when she said, enchanting me senselessly, I wrote down with his dot, dot, dot. Like I wanted to understand a, what about him didn't fulfill your checklist? So what is your checklist? Cause I still don't know. And B, what about him made you make all these exceptions, I guess, because he's so great. Like for example, and I don't, I don't mean that you have to like give me a full paragraph, like small things like his sense of humor, the fact that you guys love the same music, the fact that you can talk to him about your parents and he doesn't judge you. I don't know, whatever it is. I need to feel that with a lot of specificity. This is the trick here, right? It has to be incredibly specific to you because in real life, that's what happens. We fall in love with someone for incredibly specific reasons that say a lot about who we are and about where we are in life. I want to say there's a lot of really great detail here, like the hot chocolate that was warming her hands. There's a part where she mentions Citadel of Rules about you know, the way her, her parents have enveloped her in rules. 
And it's just, it's just so good, right? Like there's a lot here that's working. So as I was reading this, he becomes this totally different person and says, I'm never going to marry you. Like you're beneath me. I, you know, it's ridiculous that you even thought that you had a chance with me, essentially. It's like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation here, right? Like he becomes someone else. So I have two theories. Either one, he does love her and he's just pretending that he became this horrible person because for some reason he's under a lot of pressure from his family or whatever. I mean, I'm wondering if, if the author wanted us to think this or two, she was duped, which is totally okay because we've all been there, right? Like we've all been been misled and, and fooled. You know, I just need more emotional context so that I could have a theory, a firm theory. And right now, because I know very little about her, it could honestly be both of these things. And I would like to have like a, a strong opinion one way or another. You, you don't think the author was going for kind of a Mr. Darcy, Eliza Bennett kind of thing in terms of class differences and this man saying that he wouldn't marry this woman because she's beneath him? Maybe but there's then- a redemptive thing later where he comes back and realizes that he was wrong but then why is he with her yeah the mr darcy thing is like they're so apart and in that society they can't actually interact but they spent months together like if you spend months with somebody and the thing that i can't quite figure out is like were they intimate with each other not that it matters but like how close was this relationship i don't Um, think so because she said he never crossed a boundary although that might have been a different kind of boundary right but but i also had that question yeah Yeah. because if you if you spend like you can fall in love with somebody in three months you know or you know a month you know if you're spending all of this time together like really connecting and really vibing and that's why this whole like flip the switch thing i don't know yeah i feel like and if he had used her sexually mm-hmm. then you know this this manic switch thing might even make sense because he could be like a really really big jerk horrible person abuser but then if he was so respectful of her in every way and wonderful in every way and all of a sudden switched i need i need more is what i'm saying i i would just say like i really like this i think sometimes we when cc and i go on and on and on about something maybe it's like we have a lot of critiques for it usually we we go on and on and on about the things that we think have a lot of potential so so yeah we're saying there's a lot of potential here it starts in the right place so brava awesome wonderful okay carly would you like to read the second query letter for us dear carly and cecilia i am seeking representation of my novel to potential publishers and appreciate you taking the time through the shit no one tells you about writing podcast to critique my query letter and the first five pages of my novel more than i ever had is a historical adventure story of 103,000 words based on the life of my family ancestor Theophilus Futrell. The story is told from the unique perspective of a New South Wales corpse soldier and will appeal to readers of historical fiction, particularly those who enjoy Kate Grenville's The Secret River, The Lieutenant, and Sarah Thornhill, and Peter Fitzsimmons' James Cook. It's the year 1790. Desperately out of work with limited options, Theo Futrell enlists as a young soldier in the New South Wales corpse. Daunted, he sails away from England to the new penal settlement on the other side of the world. Amidst famine and hardship in Sydney, Theo finds love in the shape of a beautiful convict nurse, Ellen Short. Determined to be promoted and gain land, Theo makes a decision that puts him in the middle of civil and military tensions and jeopardizes his life. With the help of an influential ally, John MacArthur, Theo's freedom is assured, but his dream of a family is shattered when he finds himself as a single father to his son, Joseph. Bereft, Theo struggles to be a good father. When he reconnects with the street-smart but married convict, Anne Gilbert, fate allows him a second chance at family. But after Theo receives new military orders, he must choose between his son and his new family. Can he survive the consequences of his decision leading to his most heartbreaking loss of all? 
The story is based on the life of Theophilus Futrell, who arrived in Australia on the notorious Second Fleet as a New South Wales Corps soldier. The tale of love, loss, survival, and a father's commitment to a son. I have worked in communications as a copywriter and editor in the corporate and science environments in Australia. I completed the Australian Writers' Centre's Creative Writing Stage 1 program and a six-month membership with the UK-based Histories Quill Work in Progress Group Coaching. I am a member of the North Beaches Writers Group and have lived in Melbourne, Adelaide, and London and now call Sydney my home. This is my first novel. I look forward to receiving your critique of this query letter and the first five pages of my manuscript. Kind regards, Redacted. I would just like to say that as a South African who hosts this podcast, I will set aside the animosity we usually feel towards Australians so that we can continue with this query letter. Our rugby sides are constantly competing against each other and our cricket teams are constantly competing against each other as well. Plus, we have running commentary on who has more dangerous insects and reptiles in their country. But I will put that aside as we move on to this. Cece, would you like to tell us what you think of that query letter? Yes, and I thought that was very amusing. I liked that. I didn't know there was a rivalry. Okay, we always talk about how like word count is really important and this is 103,000 words. I will say though that because it's historical fiction, that's okay. It's not too long. I'm saying this because oftentimes I tell people, try to keep it at 99,000 max because people can't stand anything over 100K. So I think it's fine because of the genre. Second paragraph, the writer offers two, and I'm using air quotes in between two, comps. Kate Greenville's, and then there are three titles, and then another book. You don't need three titles by by Kate Greenville. Pick one. Only because, like, first of all, you don't need to list three. It's extra information. It adds words to your letter. But also because you're not really telling us anything new. I'm not familiar with Kate Greenville's novels. But, you know, if someone tells me that their work is similar to Ellen Hildebrand's The Rumor, I know, because I know her body of work, that probably this means that it has also a lot in common with her other titles. Since, you know, she has a strong author brand. So I really would pick one. I think I think that's important. The one that has, is, is most consistent with your work. And then paragraphs four and five, two things. One, there's a lot of detail. It's almost like the author is giving us a beat by beat of the story, which I understand why um, this person's doing this because he wants to convey the plot, but it's like too much information. So I would dial it back. It also, it feels like there's two plots, which can be confusing. It feels like there's two heroes journey inside one story. Is that intentional? Maybe it is, but But if it is, it does fall out a little bit of the conventions, which is okay as long as it's intentional. But it's also possible that it's not intentional and that it's a really common mistake made in historical fiction inspired by family members. Usually there's so much ground to cover. And then, you know, what you do is you just say everything that happened to this person without tying it together. There has to be a through line. So for example here, and I don't know this person's story, it could be something like Theo has always dreamed of having a family in his first attempt and then the first plot point, which doesn't work out. He has a second chance at this when he meets and then that plot point. And again, I don't know if that's actually the guiding question, but that is really what you have to do. Figure out what the guiding question is in your work. And that is the question that the reader is seeking to answer right from the moment of the inciting incident. There are many questions the reader is seeking to answer, but there is one that the reader is, is turning the pages consistently because they can't wait to find out. Will she this? Will he this? Will they this? And I think that needs to be woven in a bit more tightly. And I totally get the challenge. It's like a huge challenge, but it does have to be done. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what did you think? 
Yeah, I was, uh, my main note was going to be the same thing, what Cece was saying about it's so hard when you have a real life story, turning it into fiction, especially respecting families' wishes. Oftentimes, I'm not saying this is the case here, but oftentimes the writer feels like their family story is the most important story to ever exist. And so they do kind of go over the top with specificity. I think this author is actually doing a great job of focusing on all of the the high points, you know, the actual drama and actual plot. So I think there is actual plot here. So that's why I'm saying I, I think this person has what it takes. The only thing I would say, you know, in the in the second paragraph, it says the story is told from a unique perspective of a New South Wales Corp soldier. You know, they keep focusing on like why this story is unique without kind of telling you why it's unique in a hook. So I would say, tell us what is unique about this. Not like everybody kind of knows about the migration from England to Australia area and, you know, uh, New Zealand and everything like that in terms of the convicts. But what is specifically unique about this? And I think we really have to focus on, on that. I would find a way to combine the paragraphs amidst famine and then the next one bereft theo struggles i would combine them figure out a way to combine those two use less names figure out a way to just kind of tailor that a little bit more pull that down so it's not so wordy but yeah i think there's a lot of drama here i think there's i think there's a lot to work with it's very strong but i do think i agree with cc as well pick one of kate Cranville's books um but yeah this is very interesting and uh, i don't normally work on historicals that are this historical but i'm i'm intrigued um by all the drama here wonderful thanks carly cc why don't we dive into those opening pages? What did you think of those? Okay, this was a challenge for me personally. For the listener, here's what happens. Theo is working at a factory. We know because the author does a really good job of inserting this, that he works at a factory six days a week, 12 hours a day. And the factory catches on fire. And then what we see is Theo and you know people around him struggle to get out of the fire, but also save people and you know try to put the fire out. It's, it's very well written, very clear. I know exactly what was happening. I was always in scene. There is emotion. I wondered if the emotion could be woven into it a bit more seamlessly, as opposed to just having like a paragraph with the emotion, because that's what's happening right now. But even then, like that, it wasn't an issue at all. Like it was really, really well done. What I'm saying it's a challenge is because I cut to the end of this and I was like, what? There's something that's not working here. And I didn't know what it was. There was an emotional shift from the beginning to the end because Theo does immediately realize that without the factory, he has no livelihood. He's an orphan. He has no one to turn to. His best friend or his friend anyway, at least has a wife and has like a father-in-law that can help, I think. And he has no one. And you know, what is he going to do? He has no livelihood. So I was thinking like, what's wrong with this? It's well-written, but there's something. And I had to take some time to think about it. And that's because I couldn't pinpoint what it was. And it happens to me a lot where I feel things before I'm able to articulate them, but I'm absolutely sure of the feeling. And after a while, I realized, um, and it was so simple. Right now, the first pages are Theo is in the factory, factory catches on fire. Theo immediately and very full of lots of awareness realizes that he has no livelihood. He has no, no place to go. And he has to, you know, he goes to a different place. That's why he migrates. Picking an inciting incident isn't just about choosing something in a character's life that if it were happening, in real life would constitute significant stakes. Because yes, in real life, if a factory catches on fire, I'm an orphan. It's all I have that is a high stakes problem. No doubt about it. In fiction, it's not. In my opinion, you need to really put your main character in a pressure cooker situation because fiction is 
a representation of heightened reality. And I'll illustrate what I mean by this with an example that probably does not apply here, but you know, just to just to give the author a, a sense of what I mean. If Theo had gambling debts, perhaps not even his gambling debts, gambling debts left by someone else. I don't know, but let's say it's his. And so, and that's why he needed to 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 work 12 hours a week or one of the reasons, right? Like and with the factory burning, it's not only that he won't have money for basic things, which is again in real life is a very real problem, but also these people are going to come after him and going to potentially kill him. If he had just been left by the woman of his dreams or if maybe losing the factory meant that the woman left him, I don't know. I would like more drama, more subplots surrounding this inciting incident to heighten the stakes. And I, it's strange to say this because anyone would agree that if you lose your livelihood, that's enough stakes in real life, but I don't think it's enough in fiction. So that's my note for the author. I know this is based on your ancestor's life, but that's okay because this is historical fiction. You get to make stuff up. I would just weave in more drama, not in a like gratuitous way. Like I would really just think, how can I put pressure on this character from all sides? Like just, just really heighten it up. And that would mean that him migrating to a different place would carry that much more significance. There could be people chasing him. He could be fleeing from a broken heart. I don't know. Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? Yeah, I was just kind of nodding along. I think kind of what you're getting at here is that historical, like this historical time period is so full of drama, right? Like we are so privileged in our life with our science and our medicine and our technology. Like living in this time period, anything could trip you up. You know, there were, you know, the chance of getting murdered, you know, going broke, getting a disease that's going to kill you. Like there are, like, I think that's kind of what you're getting at is that you can layer so much drama into historical fiction because there was a lot of things happening that could potentially, you know, do damage to you again, like your livelihood. So definitely agree with you there. My thing was, I agree, there was like something just a little bit off or missing. I thought that oh, this was a very exciting and palpable opening scene. Very, very, very good. The thing that I would have liked was for us to have this fire scene, again, be in the moment, do all of that. But then on the page, go back to the boarding house. And instead of doing all that info dump with the explaining the backstory, get us right from the fire scene. He walks back to the boarding house and then we get all this stuff through dialogue about his past and his history because, you know, we're so in the moment with this fire scene, which is great, right? Very dramatic, but there's not a lot of dialogue because they're like trying to save, you know, other people's houses and, and save the factory. Obviously the factory is not saved, but that would have been, you know, right from one to the next for me that would have accomplished dramatic scene, then get into dialogue to explain the backstory. So that's my big note, but there's a lot happening here, a lot of potential. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. We are going to take some of the questions that you've all sent to us in terms of Q&As, things you want to ask agents. Before we do, there is something I've been wanting to ask Carly since I finished finally watching Mayor of East Town, because Carly was like, you have to watch it, you have to watch it, and she was obsessed with it. And I came back to this thing that Carly always says in terms of the query letters, in terms of the kind of fiction that she is pitched. And Carly will go, where is the warm kind of fuzzy redemptive moment at the end of this that you know they go through all these terrible things but here is this shining moment at the end Carly where the hell was that on Mayor of East Town where was our warm fuzzy for those of you who haven't watched the end this is going to be spoilers so for for those of you who haven't watched it yet maybe just fast forward okay Carly yes <laughs> for me the redemptive part is setting us up for season two you know what I mean like there was the the love of interest between the writer and mayor. 
I actually thought the writer was a total red herring. This is turning into like a gossip podcast about Mary Town, but <laughs> I thought that the writer was a red herring because I thought, okay, this dude won a National Book Award 20 years ago. Somehow he's still getting jobs teaching at colleges around the state. There's so many more recent relevant writers. So why does this guy keep getting jobs? And then I thought, oh, all of these young women like this dude. And no, maybe I thought he was wrapped up in the murder. But anyway, uh, yeah. So I think there was the romance. Okay, Cece has a note here. Go ahead, Cece. Definitely there's an uplifting arc, which is that in the end, even though that horrible thing happened and, you know, spoilers, a, a, a child goes to jail. Nobody wants that. That's horrible. And the point, though, is that even with that horrible, horrible thing, Mare and Laura come together as friends. The female friendship is there. They, I, they, I didn't they buy that, though. I did not buy that. I'm sorry. If my best friend sends my child to prison. Your I, best friend didn't send the did, child. Did you the see child. her near the knife? Did you see her near the knife block? Yeah, I don't yeah, remember yeah. that. It she's, was like, oh, so my she's God. She's tea. Re- yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was like, she's, she's going to get the knife. I thought that too. Like, yeah, but they came she... together, female friendship, yeah. women supporting yeah. women. There's no, an arc there, is, guys. This is what I think is the redemptive story of this show. <laughs> you, know, you know what I think it is? It's therapy. Therapy, right? Mayor <laughs> starts off hating therapy and at the end willingly goes to therapy. That is and a good a point. Arc, it is therapy. <laughs> so it's self-knowledge, self-acceptance, her dealing with all of these demons. For me, yeah. the redemptive arc was her climbing up into the attic. But I don't know. There's a lot of redemptive arcs. But I don't know that that was enough. (laughs) And really, if I like, if that was my best friend and my kid, like I don't know. But I I absolutely loved the show. It was amazing. I was just sitting there going, "Where is Carly's redemptive arc?" (laughs) Therapy, therapy wins. Right. Well, there we go. There we there, there we go. In your books, put somebody in therapy. Um, okay. So let's take. We've got we've got ten minutes to take some questions. I'm going to hit them out at you guys, and uh, you can alternate in terms of answering them. Here we go. Okay. How much personality versus professionalism should you have in a query letter? I say always err on the side of professionalism because everybody's idea of personality is different. Some people think they're funny. They're not so funny. So when in doubt always err on the side of professionalism. The personality can come through in two places. The author bio, you know, you could do something very small and cute there if you want to say, you know, so-and-so, you know, lives in Seattle with their lovingly obese cat or something like that. Like being really like, you could be cutesy there. Yeah, good. All right. Next one. Is it of absolute necessity to approach an agent only after the manuscript is professionally edited by an editor? Cece? What I would say is that it is of absolute necessity to approach an agent only after the manuscript is as amazing as you can make it. Different people have different resources and let's not pretend like things like money don't matter because sometimes they do. Um, If you can hire a great editor, that could be really helpful. It might cut back on time that you would otherwise spend on self-editing, but it is by no means necessary to hire an editor. I know of many, many, many talented authors, some of them my clients who have never hired an editor in their lives. They've relied on critique partners, beta readers, and more importantly, self-editing. Put your manuscript away and come back to it with a self-editor hat. 
But of course, different people have different ways to achieve their end result. And if you want to hire an editor, that's fine. But the idea to keep in mind is your manuscript must be as wonderful as possible because competition for this is fierce. Carly, do you also reject on word count? If so, what are the parameters by genre? I don't auto-reject. I feel that it's a red flag for me for sure. I don't do kid lit like very often. So I don't, I know there's very specific, like how long a middle grade is and things like that. For adults, anything that I am looking for is generally in the 75,000 words being on the shorter side. But if it's tight and punchy, that's fine. On the longer side, I generally don't work on any fiction over 100,000 words because I don't do any sort of science fiction fantasy world building. Any historicals might push 100, but that's not usually my space. So when in doubt, you know, 75 to 100 should be everybody's sweet spot. I'd go with that. Wonderful. Thank you. Cece, if you have an underlying theme or agenda with your novel, is it important to include that in the query, even if it bumps up the word count? Additionally, is there a perfect word count for query letters? as one page can be fudged with spacing and font, etc. I would say in terms of the ideal word count, 300 to 500 words, or something in that range. It is very subjective, though. I think when in doubt, err on the side of brevity. In terms of the themes, so I would say no, don't include it in the query letter if it's going to bump up your word count. And here's why. The themes should be apparent through the plot. You don't have to spell this out for the agent. The agent is really smart, I promise. For example, a book like Thin Girls by Diana Clark. If I read the pitch copy for that, I don't know because I haven't done it in a while, but I've read the book. I doubt that the themes will be spelled out. Like this book covers themes of, that's that probably won't be there, but based on the plot, I can tell. So the plot should really do the heavy lifting. And it's okay to add that sentence as long as you're not going to bump up the word count. Awesome. Thank you. Carly, how much weight do agents put on comps in query letters? Well, great this question landed on me because I'm always the one blathering on comps, 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 comps. I, I say this every time and I wish I didn't put that much emphasis on comps, but I really do because it tells me how much you read in your genre, how well you actually know your book, that self-awareness, how recent you know your project might be, um, how in tune you are with the market. So I, I wish that I didn't have to, but we work in a business and comps and business go hand in hand. So I do put a lot of weight on them. Okay, great. More comps questions, but this one, Cece, is it best to focus on tone, structure, or theme when choosing comp? Ooh, okay. For me, for my taste, I would say, I mean, I would say ideally all of them if you can do that, but if you can't, tone, theme, structure in that order, unless, and this is the exception, there's something really different and experimental about your book. So for example, if the structure is really unique, then you might want to find a comp that has that really unique structure as well and reference that specifically. But you know, if it's more like conventional all across the board, then that would be the order. You know, one thing that I will say is that you can specify in what way something is a comp. You can say something like with the lyrical prose of, and then insert that comp or with the alternating points of view and timeline in XYZ. That's fine. You can be really specific if you want to be. Okay. Well, that, that actually then leads to our next question. So I'll ask you to answer that as well. Do you have tips on identifying relevant comps for stories whose themes and plots are unusual? Okay. So essentially this is going to the bookstore. It should be your, your Disneyland, right? Like it should be your, your, your favorite thing to do, whether it's, on your iPad or Kindle or whatever, your e-reader, or whether it's an actual bookstore, there's usually a shelf that's like, if you like this, you will like that. So have a lot of look at those kinds of books and see how they do it. See how other people find 
comparable titles in terms of like the reader's taste, right? In bookstores. That's one way. Another way is to look up the comps in the deal announcements. If you follow authors on Twitter and on, on social media, they often share the announcement for their deals and they have shared for past deals. And you can see how something like sometimes you can see how something was pitched. So I believe there was a book called The Other Black Girl that just came out and I read the arc a few months ago and it's really good. And I think I remember reading that it was pitched as Get Out meets The Devil Wears Prada. And now they've changed the, the comps, actually. They've changed it to Get Out and something else. But when I first read the arc, those were the comps. So if you look at books that exist and see what comps those books use, that might help inspire you as well. And then also, listen, community. Talk to your friends. Like you should have a writer's community. If you don't, please find one. It's really important. Writer's group, reader's group, book clubs. Talk about your story. Give people a little bit. And maybe they'll go like, oh my gosh, that reminds me of such and such book. So yeah, that, that could be helpful as well. Yeah, librarians are a great resource. And also if you can't find a great comp, you can say for fans of you know XYZ or my book is in conversation with XYZ. Those are two good segues too. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Last question. We'll give this one to Carly. I'd love clarification on when agents would like to be updated in the query process. Any developments at all or after request for fulls or offers of representation only? There's a lot of conflicting information out there. Yeah, this is a great question. Traditionally, agents only want to be updated if there's an offer, but I would say any opportunity is kind of an opportunity to nudge. I don't think you need to get in touch if somebody else has just requested the full. You know, I just assume other people are requesting the full because I requested the full. I would say that if you win an award or you're nominated for some, or, you know, you are, you know, some, some sort of like industry-ish news or an offer, I think those are two cases that you can get it. Wonderful. Okay. So that's been a very jam-packed session. Thank you so much, Carly and Cece, again for taking the time. And we look forward to our next Books with Hooks segment. Just a few other things before we go into today's guest segment. CC is available for one-on-one -on -one meetings and written critiques via Manuscript Academy. You can search for that on manuscriptacademy.com, Cecilia Lira. Manuscript Academy is a year-round online writers conference, and you can make an appointment with CC for her to take a look at your first 10 pages, discuss your work, whatever the case may be is. I have various courses that will be coming up. Please go to my website, biancamaray.com, to have a look at that schedule and to make any bookings. I'll be tackling different elements of craft and doing deep dives into them over sessions that run for three hours. These sessions will be taped so you will be able to watch them even if you aren't in the Eastern time zone. And then finally, we have started a Kofi page. There are a lot of costs associated with running a podcast besides the time taken to do all the interviews, etc., etc. Editing and producing the podcast takes a lot of time, which is becoming increasingly difficult as our schedules get more busy. So we're now starting to get outside editing help, which can be quite costly. We don't want to be ruining the content of the podcast by advertising a whole bunch of stuff we don't believe in or putting in filler that's going to make the podcast less worth your while. So if you are able to make a donation to us there at Kofi, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find the link on my Twitter profile or on my Instagram page or have a look on the website under biancamaray.com under the podcast section.
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest was born in the UK and grew up in Switzerland. 
When she moved to Canada with her husband and three sons in 2010, she went through an early midlife crisis. Maybe it was the failed attempt at a startup company, but one morning she decided to follow her oldest passion, which was writing, and she never looked back. Her first novel, Time After Time, a lighthearted romantic read, was published by HarperCollins Avon in June 2016. She subsequently moved over to the dark side with The Neighbors, a domestic suspense story, which was published by Mira in March 2018. Her Secret Son followed in May 2019, and her fourth book, Psychological Suspense, Sister Dear, arrived in May 2020. Next up is You Will Remember Me, another psychological suspense, which has just published. She's now working on her sixth novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Hannah Mary McKinnon. Hannah, welcome to the show. It's so lovely to get to chat to you today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Bianca. Such a pleasure. Thank you. And your fifth book has just come out, You Will Remember Me. Why don't you tell us all a little bit about that? I'd love to. Yes. So it's another psychological thriller. It's about a man who wakes up on a beach who doesn't know who he is, where he is or how he got there. It's about a woman called Lily who's looking for her boyfriend, Jack, who went missing after an evening swim. And there's another character, Maya, who's searching for her estranged stepbrother, Ash, who upped and left and disappeared from town two years ago and hasn't been seen or heard from since. But the question is, is the man from the beach, Jack, Ash, neither or both? Ooh, dun, dun, dun. I love it. And this actually leads into one of the things I'd like to discuss with you today is in terms of structuring your novels, do you have one of the structures that you'll go to structure? So for me, for example, I like and I'm comfortable with the three act structure of novel writing. You know, I know I need my inciting incident followed by the key event that needs to happen before 25% of the novel, et cetera, et cetera. So for you, do you have one of those basic structures that you use when you're busy outlining a novel or is it that you just approach it intuitively at this point? No, I, I am very structured. I took a course a number of years ago called Plot Stormers. That's with writershq.co.uk, Sarah and Joe. Uh, they're hilarious. They had me at their logo, which is stop effing about and start writing, which appealed to me immensely. See, I um, would have chosen that as my podcast name, but you see, it was probably chosen, which is why <laughs> I had to go for some other curse word. <laughs> exactly, which we do a lot when we write, the cursing part anyway. So I, I took that course and it was a six-week online course and it's still available and it was taking your idea from idea to a fully outlined novel over the period of six weeks. So it's a little bit like Save the Cat with Beats, but more detailed than that. And I found that helped immensely because I, I admire and respect all authors and I admire those who don't plot before they start writing, those who plot on the page. I can't do that. I need a map so that I think I know where I'm going. Whether I'm going to end up where I think my destination will be depends. Depends on the characters, depends on the evolution of the book. But certainly this way of plotting and breaking it down into 16 steps, similar to Save the Cat, really helps me move the story along and hit those beats and hit hopefully hook the reader early on and keep them entertained until the end of the novel. 
And how long do you spend on that part of the process? So I recently chatted to Jeffrey Diva, who said that he spends eight months outlining his novel and then only two months writing the novel, because by then he feels like the book pretty much is writing itself because he knows exactly what needs to be done, which characters are where, he knows the characters, blah, blah, blah. So in terms of your process, if you were splitting it up percentage-wise, how much time is spent figuring out those 16 beats in Mm -hmm. terms of the plotting and outlining, and then how much time is actually spent writing? So it it depends on the book. You will remember me. I probably plotted that in about two or three weeks. And then what I always do is I write a skeleton draft, I like to call it. It's not a first draft. It's not a draft anyone will ever see because it's basic. I'm telling myself the story to see if the plot fits. There's very little description. I'll put placeholders in, for example, in You Will Remember Me, there's an old Victorian house. So I just wrote in there, describe house and highlighted it in yellow. And then I'll come and backfill because I don't want to think about that level of detail, especially if that part doesn't even make the cut. So I'll write this skeleton draft probably in about six weeks and then edit. Most of my time by far is spent on editing and layering and going over the manuscript again and again. The book I wrote for next year, which doesn't, which has a working title, but I can't share it yet because it's not official and it might change. That one was an outlier. So you will remember me really kicked my butt, even though I outlined it in detail and I felt comfortable going in that I knew what I was doing And that it wouldn't, not that it would be easy, but it would be relatively smooth. It wasn't, but for multiple reasons. Conversely, the one for next year is probably the smoothest I've ever written. The plot took me two weeks. The first draft took me a month. And I finished the whole thing, a skeleton draft. And I finished the whole thing ready for my editor's eyes in four months in total, uh, plus the plotting. And the editing, the structural edits were two weeks. I am not expecting that to happen again. I am fully expecting book seven to kick my behind. And and when you had this gift of a book, I mean, I would sit there, if I had this gift of a book, I'd sit and I'd go, shit, I must have done something wrong because yes. how has this all just flowed and been so perfect? And I would second guess it so much that yes. it would cease to be a gift. So were you able to just sit and behold this shining, glowing <laughs> manuscript and be like, oh my God, this is awesome. It was odd because I kept saying to my husband, this is going well and I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop because something's going to happen and I won't have thought of something. I'll have messed something up and it's all going to unravel. And it didn't. It was lovely. But I think because when I wrote Sister Dear, the book that came out last year, it was the smoothest I'd written up to that point. And so going into You Will Remember Me, I thought, yeah, this is going to be smooth. And it wasn't. It was awful. It was really, really hard. The hardest book I've ever written. I'll never write a point of view character with amnesia ever again. I've done that now once. I'm not doing it again. And so when I wrote the one for next year, I was expecting it to be just as hard. And it wasn't. So it took me by surprise. And consequently, yes, I was sitting there thinking, what have I done wrong? This is too smooth. I'm not going to say easy because it's never easy, but this feels, it feels wrong that it feels so right. (laughs) You see, this is what happens when you give your characters memory, Hannah. (laughs) They remember shit so you don't have to, right? 
yes, yes, yes. I want to come back to the layering and then I want to speak about something else in terms of the structure. So in terms of the layering you do when you edit, that's exactly what I do. Mm -hmm. And that's the method I teach my creative writing students because I feel like I write in layers. So I begin with just the main characters and dialogue because dialogue is what I love. I could give two dams about description. I only write it because my readers need it. Otherwise I wouldn't even bother writing it. And so that's what I start with. And then I come back and I start layering in description and emotionality and perhaps in a monologue and that kind of thing over multiple revisions. What is your process like when you talk about layering? Very similar to yours. For me, when I'm writing the story, I do use a lot of dialogue because that's what's driving the story forward more than the narrative, really the descriptions and the emotions. But then, of course, you need to lend emotions to your characters because I can hear what they sound like in my head. That doesn't necessarily fit how a reader would hear them. And you just need you need to make more of the story. Otherwise, we'd only be writing screenplays, I guess, to a certain extent, which I would love to do as another side comment one day. So it's very, very similar to yours. I'll do my first skeleton draft where the characters are really two-dimensional, a lot of dialogue, not many tags, and just quite stiff, really. There's just not that much to it sometimes. And then I'll go back and layer and layer. And and I think the best way for me to describe how I work is to compare it with someone who's painting a portrait. I don't paint. I can manage a stick man on a good day. But if you think about somebody who's painting a portrait, they don't start in the top left-hand corner and work their way down perfect brushstroke after perfect brushstroke with all the blended colours and everything and background and a sparkle in the eye and all the rest of it and sign bottom right hand corner and sign their name. That's not how it works. They'll probably start with a U for the shape of the face, two dashes for the eyes and an L for the nose and maybe a little line where another dash where the mouth will go roughly. And then they build it from there. And I feel it's very similar in terms of my writing. Yes, I plot. So I think I know where I'm going. But there's an awful lot of layering once I've finished my skeleton draft, going over it again and again. And I was asked the other day how many times I read my book before it's done, done. I mean, done skeleton draft, multiple passes, structural edits, line edits, copy edits, reading the arc, and then reading the final one again. And I counted and it's probably, I don't know, 15, 16, between 15 and 20 times. And the gentleman interviewed me, he said, well, don't you get sick of your characters by the end? I said, well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, that's when we know we're done with a book, right? Where we just like want to kill these characters and be done with them. And we're like, I've had enough of these people. They're now tiresome. They need to move along. But it is amazing how we can read our work so many times and still forget things. Like I'm the same as you, but then I'll speak to a book club about my first book, which came out 2017, which I finished writing in 2015. So that's six years ago. And I'll still forget if I took something out or left something in or moved it around. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it's the same for you. Absolutely. It is. It's it's really quite funny. You read something and you go, oh, but the lovely thing is when you haven't read it for a while, and especially if you join a book club, I don't know if you feel the same, but they bring something up and you think, oh yeah, that was really cool. Actually, I, you know, that was fun. Oh, if they read a particular paragraph of your work and they read it and you're like, God, that's good. Did I write yeah. that? <laughs> it doesn't exactly. happen often, but when it does happen, it's, it's incredibly special. I'll be like, are you sure that was me? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I 
I love your work. You know uh, that. So yes, thank of course you, it's Hannah. You. <laughs> and same for you. In terms of a story with a character who has amnesia. Now, yeah. I haven't read an arc yet, so I, I don't know what the story is about, and I don't want to ruin it for the people listening. But in terms of story, you want forward momentum. You want things happening and unfolding in the page and going forward. But I imagine with a story about a character who has amnesia, there's a lot of delving into the past as well. How do you manage that to make backstory and things like that interesting? Or was that not the kind of thing that was needing to happen in this particular novel? That's a great, great question. And honestly, when I plotted You Will Remember Me, I had I had the plot it's from three characters' uh, point of view. One of them has amnesia and I was raring to go. And it opens with the man on the beach and that chapter was fine. But then after that, when I was writing his chapters, it was hugely difficult because when someone has amnesia, so he has he has retrograde amnesia, which means that he cannot remember his past. There's another form of amnesia where you cannot make new memories. So, so it wasn't that one. It was when he, he just wakes up, he has no idea who he is. And I completely underestimated how difficult it is to write a point of view character who cannot remember anything. So you can't give him a little memory of something or refer to something or, oh, whenever I saw, I saw the police cruiser and it jogged a memory of blah, blah, whatever. I'm explaining that really badly. I promise you in the book, it would be a lot better. So you can't have a backstory. I knew his backstory. I developed all of his backstory as I do with all of my point of view characters. I interview them and I build their history to the point where the story starts. So I know who they are and how they became who they are when I start writing chapter one. But he couldn't know any of that. He, he was just a blank page, so to speak. So that was really, really hard because also you can't have multiple chapters, scenes where somebody sits him down over a cup of tea to tell him about his past because that would be really boring. So I had to have him not know his history, have other characters tell him some of his history, but without the scene after scene of let me sit you down and tell you who you are type thing. Right. So that, it was actually really hard. Just for listeners, because when you do that as a writer, you may think that you're doing it really well, but the reader knows when something is an info dump. Even if you mask it in dialogue, they know that they you know. are giving all of this like exposition and info dump information in dialogue form and it still is super boring. So what Hannah is saying here really takes chops to be able to write that. Oh, well, thank you. It was tricky, I have to say. It was, it's one of the, actually, I, I would say that structurally it's the hardest book I ever wrote or chose to write. I didn't have to, but chose to. Because there are different ways of handling amnesia. So, for example, Ruth Ware in A Dark, Dark Wood, she had a non-linear timeline, meaning that the chapters flip from past to present. So she would have, she had a woman wake up in the hospital with amnesia, but the next chapter would be you know, three or four days earlier or a week earlier or whenever it was. So it gently built the two timelines moved forward at the same pace. So you unraveled what had happened to get her to the point where she had amnesia and hit her head and whatever, and then what happened afterwards. So that's one technique of having someone with amnesia, but I didn't want and it didn't fit my story to have a non-linear timeline. It needed to go, it needed to start at one point in time and always move forward, apart from the odd flashback here and there, of course. So that's one method. Then there's S.J. Watson, who wrote While You Were Sleeping, another huge am amnesia thriller, big hit. 
movie with Nicole Kidman. And in that one, he used the diary technique where the main character would wake up, not remember stuff and read the diary that she'd written because she couldn't form new memories. So she would every day she would read the diary. And I didn't want to use that either because that didn't fit my character. It didn't fit the story. So I made it really difficult for myself by saying, no, I'm not going to use these tried and tested methodologies that these brilliant authors have used. <laughs> I'm just going to make it that he really, the character, what he does, the, the one with amnesia, the man from the beach, he discovers his history as it is drip, drip, drip fed to him, rather than having a scene where everything comes rushing back, as you would see in a Hollywood movie, that doesn't happen either. So I had to look into Amnes and research it and figure out what type he would have, how it affects the brain, how it could have been caused, what the potential outcome is and how... And the great thing about amnesia is that there's a lot of scope to play with because there are certain things or characteristics, but each case can be very or is very unique. So I had a little bit of creative license there as well to perhaps use things that aren't necessarily typical, but still plausible. It still has to be plausible. And in terms of his point of view, did you go with first person or third person? And why did you pick the point of view that you did? All of my three characters and actually all of my books, all of my suspense novels are all in first person, even when there are multiple narrators. So my very first one, my rom-com time after time was third person. I don't know why I chose third person at that point. I mean, I was new to writing. I think that's really what I'd read mostly was third person. But then when I wrote my second one, my first suspense, but my second book, The Neighbours, that had originally three point of view characters and we then changed it to four with my editor. And they were all first person, which if you just have the one, that's, again, I'm not going to say easy, simpler than when you have multiple point of view characters all in first or third person. When they're in the same tense, you have to somehow make them distinct from one another which can be very difficult because you don't want, what I didn't want when someone was reading You Will Remember Me was to have to flip back to the beginning of the chapter to figure out who's talking. So I work very hard on making my characters different from one another, different background, different upbringing, different beliefs, different, well, for example, one of them is a Brit, the other two are not. So that helps as well in terms of using slang and stuff. I can get away with that when there's a British character. So there's a lot of, I think, an awful lot about my characters before I start writing in terms of who they are and what they would sound like. So they sound different from one another and distinct on the page. Yeah, that's also very difficult to pull off. I mean, I did three point of view characters in my last novel, and that was incredibly difficult. And one of them yeah. was in third person. You know, I mm -hmm. just didn't think I could make them all sound super distinct in first person as well. So that's difficult to pull off as well. Now, something that I would like to also delve into, Hannah, is so all your readers, all your writer friends know you as the person who delivers a kick-ass, what the hell kind of ending to your books. It's like well, you, you. you're reading and you think you know what's happening and then suddenly it's like this dun-dun-dun and you're like, whoa. So in terms of those kinds of twists and turns, are those part of your 16 things that you have to know up front before you even begin writing? You have to know what the super crazy twist is going to be or how do you get to those? Or is it that that is the idea you start with 
and then you kind of work your way backwards. Generally, generally, when I when I have an idea, I have the beginning and the end and nothing in between, just a whole load of fog. I have my characters. I know where they are geographically, say, and emotionally at the beginning and at the end. And then and then I just have to write everything else, <laughs> you know, the, the 80,000 other words in between. Easy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's easy peasy. So most of the time, I think with all of my novels, I've had a beginning and I've had an ending. The ending has sometimes changed, though. In The Neighbours, it changed completely, completely and utterly. In Her Secret Son, it changed because I couldn't figure out who to kill and who done it. I wasn't, I thought I knew and then no, it was somebody else, which took me by surprise. In Sister Dear, that was the one that didn't change at all. The end, I knew the ending, even I think before I knew where the story started, I knew where it would end. And that was really quite exciting to figure out, okay, I've got these characters, but how am I going to get there? And in You Will Remember Me, I had three endings in mind. And when I outlined the book and sent the outline to my editor, she and I I asked her, I said, how dark can I go? And she said, as dark as you want. And so I did, which was fantastic because I could really mess with these characters or fiction, of course. Nobody was hurt in the production of this book. So I can't say that I know all of the twists and turns when I start writing. That would be a complete lie. And it would take away some of the enjoyment of writing because it's discovering those things. It's discovering these characters and going on this journey with them, even though I, I know kind of who they are up to the point where the story starts. After that, things can go pretty awry, depending on what they decide to do. So no, a very long winded answer to a very simple question. I don't know all of the twists and turns by far. Most of the time I know the ending, but I am open always to my characters taking me in a different direction because generally they or my subconsciousness, I suppose, know best. And maybe it's the same for you when you when you write, you develop these characters more and then something that you thought would fit then all of a sudden doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you see, I'm a complete pantser in that if I know what's going to happen in a novel, I have no compulsion whatsoever to write it. So I write it to find out what the hell's going to go on and what these characters are going to do. But it takes me much, much longer to write a book than it takes your average novelist to outline. So I wouldn't recommend it as a process. But yeah, you know, if you as the writer can be surprised by your characters, then certainly your readers will be surprised as well. Um, yes. And yes. I've been surprised by my characters many, many times. So yes, definitely relate to that. Well, Hannah, our time's up. It's been such an amazing discussion. Thank you so much. For the listeners, don't forget, we now have a bookshop.org page. We are now affiliates of that. And every book that we discuss on the podcast is loaded onto our page. If you go to my Twitter account and you look at my pinned tweet, it gives you the link to our bookshop.org page. And you will find that on my website under the podcast link on biancamaray.com. So click on that link, get Hannah's book and let us know what you think. Tweet us and tweet Hannah as well. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.